Psalm 78, a masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget his works and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. A few weeks before she passed away, my mom asked me to go through one of the closets at their house. And what was just in their closets turned out to spill into the entire room. Uh, so it was, this room was filled with stuff that she had kept from my childhood. And she wanted to know that if I wanted anything, especially she wanted to know if I wanted to pass down something to our son, Jack. So I waded through all these boxes in my own personal version of the show, American Pickers. And I found 30-year-old baby clothes that were musty and had spit-up stains. I found what it appeared to be every single homework assignment I did during elementary school. I found a collection of plastic Looney Tune mugs. I don't know, for some reason, Looney Tunes were, Looney Tune merchandise was a really big deal in the 90s. I don't understand why. I found a kid's stereo and microphone set that was complete with its own cassette player. And the piece de resistance was a little Ziploc bag. And at first I couldn't quite tell what was in it. Was it a, this a bag of like little white marbles? So I picked it up, I looked more closely. It was actually a bag filled with all of my baby teeth. She had saved every single one. There are some items like that, that all you know what to do with them is just stuff them in a closet. You can't really use them for anything. They might have sentimental value for one person or a couple of people, but they're not actually worth that much. And you're only going to ever look at them when you're sorting through a closet and you stumble upon them. Now, there are other items that are in closets, but they have no business being there. They're lumped together with what's regarded as dated and worthless. But in actuality, these items are timeless and precious. In the middle of all the items I wondered why my mom would ever save from my childhood, there was my childhood Bible. And I didn't question why she would ever save that. Friend, if you trust in Jesus as your savior, and you follow him as king of your life, the contents of your faith are a rich treasure. You are forgiven of all of your sin. You are freed from death. You are freed from the power of your past life. You have heaven awaiting you. Above all else, if you trust in Jesus, you have God. You are reconciled to him. You are no longer a stranger to him. You are his child. 
You are no longer an enemy to him. If you trust in Jesus, the Bible says you are God's friend. And right now he dwells in you by his Holy Spirit and you will be in his presence for eternity. And if you want to know the value of this treasure, remember what it cost. The blood of the spotless, eternal son of God who came down here to rescue sinners like you and me. Friend, if you have that treasure in believing in Jesus, I wonder what do you do with it? Do you functionally store that treasure in a closet? You don't really engage with it. You don't really take it out and enjoy it. And most of all, you don't take it out and share it and show it. Friends, you and I can end up storing the bottomless treasure of Christ in a closet and sort of wait for it to be discovered accidentally. Or you can take that treasure out of the closet, enjoy it yourself, and pass it down to others as it's been passed down to you. That's the heart of Psalm 78. The main point of it we print on the back of our bulletin. We could sum it up like this. God calls this generation to pass down the treasure they've received to the next generation. In fact, if you've got a bulletin, would you just turn it around and let's all read that together, the main point of Psalm 78? Ready? God calls this generation to pass down the treasure they've received to the next generation. Psalm 78 is going to show us what it looks like for us to do that. It's going to show us why it's so important to pass down our faith to the next generation. And it's going to show us how this will work, how it's going to happen. So what, why, and how. Let's begin with the what. What it looks like for us to pass down our faith to the next generation. Now, seasoned readers of the Bible will make an immediate observation when they look at Psalm 78. It's really long. 72 verses. Many Psalms fit on one page, but not this one. So we're going to concentrate on the opening part of Psalm 78, the first eight verses. We'll refer to the rest of it. We're going to, look, going to park out here for most of our time. Now, what does it look like for us to pass down our faith to the next generation? Now, Psalm 78, I think, touches on the process and the content of that task. One of my counseling professors introduced me to these helpful concepts. Process is like the method or the strategy or the activity. And content is the actual substance. So when it comes down to, the, uh, to passing down our faith to the next generation, we can see the process of doing that and the content of doing that. So Asaph talks about what it looks like, the process. Throughout these first eight verses, you could see several different activities, several different commands. They actually begin in verse one, if you look back there. We see the command or the activity to give ear or incline your ear. It makes sense that you and I need to start here. Because before you can teach anything, before you could speak something to someone, you must first listen and learn. You can't pass down what you don't have for yourself. So in verse three, Asaph reveals that he's going to talk about parables, these dark or mysterious sayings. But as he continues, he makes clear that these things aren't unfamiliar to who he's talking to. Rather, these are the things that they have heard. These are the things that they know. These are the things that they have been taught by their fathers before them. Once again, you, you just can't pass down what you don't have for yourself. 
Now, this sermon's going to talk a lot about it. You've heard it already. It's going to talk a lot about passing down our faith, passing down the gospel, passing down our faith in Jesus. Now, before I go on any further, I have to ask, we're talking about passing down faith in Jesus. What? But do you even have faith in Jesus? I have to ask before we go on. You know, we talked about those who trust in Jesus have a bottomless treasure. My friend, are you sure that you have this treasure? Are you sure that you have been forgiven? Are you sure that you have been freed from the power of your sin? Are you sure that you have been made new in Christ? Are you sure that you have a sure and steady hope? Are you sure that you've been brought back to God himself? Boy, in a passage of the Bible that's a lot about passing down, I don't want to assume that you already have it. So if you haven't done so, today is the day to turn from sin, turn from living for yourself, and turn toward living for Jesus, trusting yourself to him and what he has done to save you. And if you're not sure that you've done that, if you're not sure what that means, we would love nothing more than to talk to you about that afterwards. Please come find me. I'll just be standing at the back of the room. Now, Asaph talks about the process of passing down our faith. What are the activities that we do in order to do that? Well, we start by learning and listening, and we continue in verse four by not hiding, but telling. And notice, but I want you to pay careful attention to verse four. Notice the people who are doing that. It says, we will not hide, but tell. So Asaph doesn't say, parents will not hide, but tell. Asaph doesn't say, the children's ministry, ministry workers will not hide, but tell. He says, we collectively will not hide, but tell. It just gets me thinking. You know, the Bible presents parents as those who are on the front lines of raising and nurturing their children. However, right here, the entire community of God's people is meant to come alongside parents. The entire church community is meant to equip parents for this task. Maybe that means giving them resources that would help. Maybe that means equipping parents through the regular teaching and preaching ministry of a local church that nourishes parents so that they in turn can nourish their kids. The Bible presents parents as being on the front lines of raising and nurturing their children. However, the entire church community supports parents in that task. We come alongside them to supplement what's being taught in the home. Come alongside them to love them, to encourage them, to give them wisdom for those who have gone before them. Parents are on the front lines of raising kids, but the entire church community is meant to offer relief they need for this task. Maybe that's just straight up practical help and service. Parents are on the front lines, but the entire church equips, supports, and relieves. That sounds like a lot more than just childcare or babysitting. Now I wonder, you might be sitting there, Steve, we're talking about raising up the next generation. Now I'm just this regular Christian. I try to be faithful. I try to come to church faithfully. I try to listen to the word, apply it to my life. What am I supposed to do and helping to raise the next generation. Where do I fit in all this? Why, friends, just think about those activities we mentioned, and maybe you could fit in somewhere in, uh, in equipping, in supporting, in relieving. Could you fit somewhere there? Because the entire church community is charged for this. So maybe just to get concrete, I mean, we begin with maybe it's volunteering in our nursery or West Creek Kids or middle school, or at least to get more information about it. Or maybe more simply, it's just learning the names of the kids here, 
saying hello, making this a place where kids feel loved and welcomed. Maybe it's also committing to pray for parents and children. Maybe it's befriending parents long enough and closely enough so that when you would offer to maybe watch their kids for a night, they would feel comfortable enough to say yes. What is the process of what it looks like to pass down our faith to the next generation? Well, Asaph says we must start with listening and learning. We continue with not hiding, but telling. All of us together, not hide, but tell. It just gets me thinking. We might hide the gospel on accident, not on purpose. We might hide it on accident. Listen, it's really easy to assume that just because kids grow up in church that they automatically know the gospel. It's easy to assume that. In fact, we heard just a couple of weeks ago from our new deaconess of children's ministry, Jenna Scholl. This is her story. Jenna said she grew up in church and all of her life growing up in church, and her dad was even a pastor. And the only t- type of Bible lesson that she ever heard growing up in church was, how, was a good Bible story and how she could be a good moral person. And she never heard how a sinful person like her could be made right before the holy God. At least she didn't hear that until she was 27 years old. The good news of Jesus bearing the judgment she deserves in her place finally landed on her. Well, friends, here at church, if we assume that everybody knows the gospel, we're going to end up hiding the gospel. Asaph says, don't hide, but tell. It gets me thinking, even being vague with the gospel, just settling for general talk about God and good deeds is effectively hiding it. No, telling means being clear. So that when the Bible confronts us with truth about ourselves that we don't like, we don't avoid it. We remain clear about it. Because what we care about most isn't whether or not something is offensive. It's whether or not something is true. Telling. We we don't hide what we tell. And telling means teaching. Look at verse 5. This is another part of the process of passing down our faith. Not hide, but tell. Telling means teaching. Let's just double click on that word teach for a second. What does teaching require? Well, it requires many things, just to mention a few of them. Teaching requires explanation. You know, we toss around churchy words all the time here. Toss around concepts like sin, justification, and faith. Teaching means not assuming that people know what those, things, what those concepts mean. Teaching means explaining what those concepts mean. Double click on teaching. What does that require? Teaching requires persuading. You know, you can assume that everybody knows what you're talking about, and you can assume that everybody's interested in what you're talking about. Why should the next generation care about any of this? Why should the next generation care about giving their lives to Jesus? Why should the next generation care to serve the church and be immersed in the Bible? Teaching requires persuasion. Double click. Teaching requires modeling. Modeling, will we just talk about the truth or will we show that the truth changes how we live? Double click and you see that teaching requires consistency. Teaching about who God is and what he has done and how we respond to him isn't meant to be like your kid's basketball practice or dance rehearsal, where they are taught by the ones who get paid for it for 45 minutes, two times a week. No, 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 teaching requires consistency. Psalm 78.5 refers back to Deuteronomy 6, the chapter we read earlier. This chapter gives a picture that teaching isn't restricted to when you go to church. 
Rather, teaching about God should be woven into the entire fabric of your life. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time. Do you want to be part of the holy calling of passing down our faith to the next generation? Well, Psalm 78 talks about the process of doing that. It says we start by listening. We continue by not hiding but telling and we teach. Well, that's the process But what are the actual content? What is it that we listen to? What is it that we tell? And what is it that we teach? Well, I think verses four and five summarize that for us. The content begins with the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. In other words, the content begins with who God is and what God has done. And I want you to pay careful attention to verses four and five. I want you to pay careful attention to how Asaph describes who God is and what he has done. And when you do, do you think, does Asaph seem to present this as a dry subject like 10th grade trigonometry? No, no, no. Notice closely. Asaph uses words like glorious and wonders. You keep reading Psalm 78 and you're going to find examples of this. How God split an entire sea in two so that people walked on dry ground. How God fed hundreds of thousands of people in the desert by raining bread from the sky. How God humbled the most powerful nation in the entire earth with cataclysmic plagues. And how that same God forgives and restores and shepherds and keeps his promises. Glories, wonders. You know, church, the kids are watching us, whether they realize it or not. Let's ask for God's help that we would treat the worship of God as a joyful, glorious privilege, not as a dry chore and obligation. Let me put it to you another way. Someone else has said this, not original to me. I've heard it said that you can't expect there to be a fire among the people in the pew if there is ice in the preacher and the pulpit. Does that make sense? It's another way of saying, if I'm bored with the Bible that I'm preaching, how can I expect you to be passionate about it? And doesn't that make sense for, doesn't that apply, the same thing applies to the next generation. If there is ice in this generation, how do we expect there to be fire among the next generation? If you're half-hearted, how do you expect them to be whole-hearted? If you're bored, how do you expect them to be thrilled? Now, I know what you're thinking, Steve. I'm tired. (laughs) I am too. This is a tall order. Who is sufficient for these things? Yes, we say that God will have to overcome our imperfect and meager efforts. But friends, I do just want you to acknowledge that what they say is true. They say, never trust a skinny cook. (laughs) Kids will pick up really quickly that if the food you dish out isn't good enough for you to eat yourself. So the content of what we pass down, we begin 
What do we actually tell? What do we actually teach? We begin with the glories, the glories of who God is and what he has done. And then we go on to verse five. We also teach the testimony and the commands that God's given us. Oh, friends, I think it's crucial that you get this order right. You start with the glories of who God is and what he's done, and then you go on to God's commands. It's crucial that you get this order right. Because the only way that you'll follow God's commands is if you first know God's grace. Take the most famous list of rules in the entire Bible. I bet you can guess what it is. The Ten Commandments, right? Do you remember how the Ten Commandments start? We'll do a little Bible Jeopardy here. How the Ten Commandments start. You say, yeah, of course, Steve, I know how the Ten Commandments start. It starts with the first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, no, there's actually something that comes before that. The Ten Commandments starts, Exodus 20, verse 1. It's saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's how it starts. So do you see? Even the most famous list of rules in the Bible, the commands of God are a response to the grace of God. What you, do for God. what you do for God is only a response of what God has done for you. So in Psalm 78, Asaph details generation after generation who forgets what God has done for them out of his grace. And unsurprisingly then, generation after generation rebels against God's commands. Friend, if you don't know God's grace, you won't think God's commands are good. You'll think they're burdensome. It's as the old saying goes, rules without relationship equals rebellion. So kids in the room, this is one of those times. Ready? When you start with God's undeserved kindness to you, when you start there, you will want to give him your unreserved obedience. Start with undeserved kindness, and that, what makes, you, that makes you want to give him your unreserved obedience obedience. In other words, let's talk about this. The God who calls you to obey him is the one who first sent his son to die for all the times you disobeyed him. And if God is like that, oh, then he must want your best. If God is like that, then his commands must be good. What does it look like to pass down our faith? Point one is the longest. Don't worry. We don't hide We tell and teach. We tell and teach the glories of who God is and what he has done. And we tell and teach how we respond to God in trust and obedience. Now that's what we do, but why do we do it? Why is this so important? I think verses six through eight explain that to us. We strive to be used by God to pass down our faith for three reasons. So that the next generation's faith would be perpetual, pure, and persistent. Perpetual, pure, and persistent. So that their faith would be perpetual. In other words, we pass down our faith to them them, so that they in turn will pass down their faith to the generation after them. Verse six, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children. Okay, we're gonna bring it back. Think about our faith in the gospel like a slinky. Kids, if you don't know what to ask for for next Christmas, might I suggest a slinky? When you start a slinky down the stairs, at least if you're doing it right, it can't help but continue to move down to the next one. 
When it lands rightly on a step, it will spring ahead to the next step. Uh, When the good news that the Almighty God loved and pursued and even died for those who hated him, when that good news lands rightly on you, it's only natural that it will spring ahead in hopes that it will land on someone else. Kids, my prayer is, is that when you grow up, you wouldn't just come to church. My prayer is that when you grow up, you would love Jesus so much that you would want other people in your life to have Jesus too. We want our faith to be like a slinky, perpetually springing ahead. But if you ever try to get a slinky to go smoothly down the stairs, you know that it's a delicate process, as we just demonstrated a few minutes ago. One misstep could knock the slinky off course and halt it in its tracks. So think of the generation in the wilderness right after the exodus. All of that generation died out except for two of them, Joshua and Caleb. They really could have been the last generation of God's people. So you and I need to think carefully about our own generation. If we don't pass out our faith, we could be the last generation to believe the gospel. That's just thinking about the church globally. I want you to think about the church locally, thinking about the church at West Creek. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus tarries, how are we investing and preparing for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of gospel ministry here? There's a good question to talk about, maybe even over lunch, over the next couple weeks. How are we investing, preparing for the next 10, 20, 30 years? You know, there's a ripe harvest about two blocks that way called Shiloh Middle School. Maybe after lunch, maybe together at community groups, we could, talk, we could start to talk about ways that we might strategize to reach out and reach students and families at that place. Getting a slinky to go smoothly down the stairs is a delicate process, just like passing down our faith is. I can't help but think how amazing it is that the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that he died, was buried, and rose again, that that gospel has been preserved and passed down to us for thousands of generations, thousands of steps. How amazing is it? Brother and sister, if you believe in Jesus, that message has been preserved for you through reformers like Martin Luther, through pioneer missionaries like Lottie Moon, through the blood of martyrs like William Tyndale, You look at figures like these and you will see the immense privilege that it is to come in a long line of people who passed down the gospel that they first have received. Why is it so important to pass down our faith? So that the next generation's faith would be perpetual and so that the next generation's faith would be pure. Look at verse seven. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is a picture of pure faith. This faith is deep. It's not shallow. This faith is sincere. It's not superficial. This faith is personal. It's not mom and dad's. This is a trust in God that runs deeper than just your outward actions. Guys, do you remember one of the ways that Jesus indicted the scribes and Pharisees? One of the ways he described them? He quoted Isaiah 29, 13. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouths, And honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Kids in the room and adults, you're allowed to listen in. It's possible. 
for you to look like you're close to God, but actually be far from him. It's possible to know all the right words to say, but not actually believe. It's possible to know a lot of facts about God, but don't actually know God himself. It's possible to be so used to church that you never actually read and wrestle with the Bible for yourself. Let me tell you from my own experience as in growing up in church. It's possible to learn how to blend in here and at the same time learn how to blend in in the world. It's possible to go through the motions of religion and have a heart that's not changed. We want you to have a faith that's pure. A good prayer I've heard, and you can make it your own. You ask God this. God, I don't want to just give you my behavior. I want to give you my heart. But I know that there are ways that I don't want you. So God, would you replace my stubborn heart with a heart that receives you? And God, would you help me to love you and actually to want you? God will honor that prayer. Why is it so important that we pass down our faith? So that the next generation's faith would be perpetual, pure, and persistent. Look at verse eight. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Do you remember Jesus's parables of the soils? What separated, what was the difference between the seed that fell on good soil from the seed that fell on rocky, shallow, and thorny soil? What was the difference? Well, the seed that fell on good soil lasted. It was steadfast. It persevered. It persisted over time. We don't want to see the next generation just believe in Jesus one time. We're not aiming for only one decision to pray a prayer or raise a hand. We want to see disciples. Not just believe in Jesus one time, but keep believing in Jesus over time. Because real faith faith lasts. Real faith is persistent. Now, in light of that, there's a, I think we need to apply this carefully as an entire church. We want to take care in how we affirm professions of faith in Jesus. Listen, we encourage people, encourage people of all ages to trust in Jesus to save them and to follow Jesus as Lord. We encourage people of all ages to do that. God loves to save young kids. I will say, though, I grew up with a lot of kids who were baptized at a very young age who were told too quickly that their faith was pure, but over time, their faith didn't persist. It turns out that they weren't really following Jesus on their own two feet. They were just trying to please mom and dad. And as soon as temptation got real, they fell away, and now they have nothing to do with Jesus. And the danger for those people is they can have some kind of false assurance that I got baptized, so I'm good. It doesn't matter that I don't presently love and follow Jesus. I don't know. Real faith lasts. Kids, trust in Jesus. Trust him to stand in your place. Trust him and listen to him. And those who have really done that will keep trusting in Jesus. Those who have really done that will start to deal with their sin differently. Those who have really done that will start to deal with the hard things in their lives differently. They'll start to treat people differently. Those who have really trusted in Jesus will want to read the Bible and will want to pray without being told to do it. 
Those who trust in Jesus will trust in him as temptation gets stronger in their lives. Oh, kids, we pray that God doesn't just give you a one-time faith. We pray that he gives you a persistent faith. Parents, if you want to think about this a little bit more, we have copies of an article we've found very helpful called Baptism, Lord's Supper, and Church Membership for Children. It's on that table uh, underneath the map in the back of the room. What will happen if your faith isn't persistent? What will happen if your faith is just a one-time decision and not an ongoing way of life? Well, you'll end up like those in Psalm 78, verse 8. Those who are rebellious and stubborn. Those who fade, not those who are faithful. The warning is that your heart and my heart are no different from their heart. See, your heart is like a car. It's not original to me, and I've shared it before, but your heart is like a car. If you take your hands off the wheel, you won't drift towards staying on the road. You will drift away from the road. Your heart, by nature, drifts away from God, not toward him. And that's not just because of the tendencies in you. That's also because of the temptations around you. Think of those like the shiny billboards on the side of the road that distract you from driving. If you don't actively keep your hands on the wheel and receive God's word, you'll end up receiving the world's word in those billboards. And the world has endless ways of trying to convince you that sin is normal and godliness is strange or even bad. And if you pay attention to those, those words long enough, you will veer off the road of faithfulness to God. I just think this is a good reminder for us as a church, for parents in particular. If we don't teach our kids, the world will. Here's an example. The world will teach you that true freedom is in the absence of restrictions. Live however you want, as long as you don't harm anybody. Elsa from Frozen teaches you that. She sings in the song, Let It Go. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. But friends, that's not the way to freedom. That is the way to crashing and burning. Just think as one, as one pastor responds to this, how do you love someone? How do you commit to someone without restricting yourself in some way? How are you a good parent or a good spouse if you don't restrict yourself? Oh, so real freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's having the right ones. Is a fish really free if it's out of water? No, it needs the good restrictions of water. That's what it was made for. So in Psalm 78, Asaph lists generation after generation that crashes off the road. But he knows that there is a road that you and I were made to run on persistently. So kids, when you come to church, we don't want to just tell you how bad the world's ways are. No, we don't want to warn you about that. But even more than that, we want to show you how good God's ways are. If you and I are like cars, then if you want to know how you're supposed to work, and especially if you want to know how you can be made whole again, you don't go to your own feelings. You don't go to your own heart. You go to the one who made you. So with God's help, we want to pass on our faith to the next generation. We want to do this by teaching them. We want to see them have a perpetual, pure, and persistent faith. But finally, we come to one last question. And most briefly, how will that happen? How are we going to succeed in this? 
Like we've said and we've hinted at throughout our time, Psalm 78 shows cycles of people who forget God and rebel against God. To return to the slinky analogy, it seems that with every generation, the slinky goes off course and halts in its, halts in its tracks. The car crashes with each generation. But Psalm 78 does end on a bright note. If you're still there, why don't you skip ahead and read, and read with me Psalm, 69, uh, Psalm 78, verses 69 through 72. Let's look at how this psalm ends. Asaph writes, he built, that God built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So throughout Psalm 78, Asaph takes us from the time right after the Exodus to the time of King David. Now, despite God's people's disobedience, God still builds his temple. Despite his people's rebellion, God still chooses a leader, King David, who would be their shepherd king. And we close Psalm 78 and we might think, well, everything's good, right? They all lived happily ever after. Well, you would be wrong. We know the rest of the Bible. We know what happens after verse 72. History does repeat itself. The slinky stops again. The car crashes again. The line of kings after David failed to obey God again. We hold this high bar for the next generation. But let's be clear. They won't make it in their own strength. In addition to wanting a pure and perpetual persistent faith for the next generation, we've got to tell them that their only hope is if God gives grace to those who fail. He pursues those who stray. He restores those who rebel. You know, verse 38 is the very center of this psalm. It goes like this. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger and did not stir up all of his wrath. Our hope for our faith to be passed down to the next generation, our hope for that doesn't rest in our perfect parenting. It doesn't rest in our pristine children's ministry. It doesn't even rest in our own persistent faithfulness. Our hope to pass down our faith to the next generation rests in God's persistent faithfulness. He's kept the slinky going. He kept it going all the way to the greater David, Jesus. He's the ultimate sacrifice who makes atonement for your sin, who fully satisfies the anger of God. He's the ultimate temple where God's presence dwells on earth, where man can meet God. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd king. As we long to raise up the next generation, we can't just tell them, do more and try harder. Oh, we need to point them to Jesus. Verse 72 about David points forward to the greater David. Only Jesus is wise and skillful enough to shepherd your life. Don't entrust yourself to the hands of any other, not even your own hands. Entrust yourself to his hands, the ones that were pierced for you. Oh, he is the greatest treasure that we can pass down. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. 
for your kindness to us that we did not deserve. Lord, help us to receive it, knowing full well the treasures of this grace, the treasures of forgiveness, the treasures of adoption, the treasures of union with Christ, the treasures of being reconciled to you. Help us to receive it, to enjoy it, and, oh Lord, not store it in the closet, but to share it and pass it down to others if we, as we have received it. God, if anyone else has not received Jesus, the bottomless treasure that he is, would you lead them to that? Would you clear any obstacle in the way? And God, would you bless us? Would you raise up the next generation, even here at the church at West Creek, so that their faith in Jesus would be perpetual and pure and persistent? We can't do this on our own. We need your faithfulness. So we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.